0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Scott Morrison. Since his start in 1979 covering both your Toronto Maple Leafs and the NHL for the Toronto Sun, Scott has reported for Sportsnet, Hockey Night in Canada, and the CBC. An icon in the hockey media landscape, Scott has twice served as president of the Professional Hockey Writers Association. He has also written numerous books, and today we're going to focus on three of them. His most recent book is the number one bestseller, 1972, the hockey series that changed the game forever, covering the 50th anniversary of the Canada-Russia Summit Series. His upcoming book, by the way, now available for pre-order, is called Draft Day, written with NHL lifer Doug McLean and is best described as a money ball for hockey. And I also have questions for Scott about his book written with Maple Leaf's legendary ex-captain Rick Vive called Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. Welcome, Scott, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Andrew. Thanks for having me, and I'm uh, in my home in, uh, in Don Mills, suburb of Toronto. And have you been in that house for long? Because that, to me, is an example of a, an area that's changed tremendously over the past few decades.
1: Oh, it definitely has. We've been here since summer of 1995. We moved in, and uh, we just absolutely love it here at it's one of the first planned neighborhoods in the city of Toronto. Once upon a time, E.P. Taylor owned the property and had his horse farm on this, on the lands here. And then, uh, it was developed and, uh, it's like living in the country in the middle of the city because we had huge trees and nice sized property. And, uh, it's very tranquil and, uh, we love it. It's a great location. And to your point, it has changed dramatically. We've the shops of Don Mills came in not far from where we are. And, uh, all of a sudden, we had tons of restaurants and shops and everything else. So it's, a, and now, like everywhere else in the city, tons of condos are being built as well. So it's a, it's a happening
0: kind of area. Well, that shops in Don Mills, uh, you may know, was quite controversial because it replaced what they would have called an indoor mall at the time. And all the seniors love to do their walking inside. And once it was announced, it would be an outdoor mall replacing it. There was an outcry.
1: Yeah, there absolutely was. And Cadillac Fairview owns the property. And uh, what they ended up doing, because there are a a bunch of senior residents in the area. And uh, so what they did is uh, they provided in the wintertime transportation for the seniors to go up to Fairview Mall, which isn't too far away, so they could walk indoors up there. So
0: they they reached a compromise. (laughs) That's a good postscript. I didn't realize that. So good on you, Cadillac Fairview. Scott, let's jump right into the most hard-hitting questions. How often are you confused for Scotty Morrison, as in Ian Scotty Morrison, he being former NHL referee-in-chief and former chairman of the Hockey Hall of Fame? Well, back in
1: the day, it happened all the time. And uh, we first uh, started laughing about it uh, when I was uh, much younger, and I was uh, was covering junior hockey as well at the time, and before I really got full-time into the NHL. And uh, I'd written a column cause I was coming to Marley's written a column and, and it was critical of officiating. And and one day, but not over the top or anything, but there was some comments and, uh, and all of a sudden I got, I got a call and it was Scotty. And he says, what did you write today? And I said, well, blah, blah, blah. He says, my phone's been ringing off the hook with people from the OHA or OHL, whatever at the time or OHA calling, and How can you be criticizing officials, et cetera, et cetera, and not realizing that it wasn't him and it was me. And so, Many times uh, there was uh, crossed wires and confusion. And, I, and one of the funnier stories is um, my very first NHL All-Star game that I covered as a young reporter. I think it was 1990, 1983, rather, whatever the year it was in New Jersey. And the senior guys didn't want to go because it was in New Jersey. So they thought this is a good one for me to go. And before I was leaving, I said, well, you know, how's everything work? And, uh, well, you know, they ran me through it and they said, and, you know, they'll give you a nice gift. when you." when you arrive and I said, Oh wow, that's kind of cool. I said, what, what, what do you think it'll be in it? And said, well, you know, a golf shirt or a hat or some, something like that. I said, okay, that's cool. Young guy, anything sounds good. Anyway, we get to the hotel and there's myself and uh, a reporter from the, uh, the star and the globe. We we shared a cab from the airport. We get to the hotel, check in. We said, okay, we'll meet down in the lobby in 10 minutes and we'll go for dinner. So I walk in my room and, and I look and bureau at the room is just covered with goodies there was bottles of wine there was bottles like rum and and rye and scotch and there were golf shirts and there was a leather bag and there was all sorts of stuff it's just never ending this goodie lineup and I go holy jump and I said these guys weren't kidding when they said they look after you at these events so I go and meet the guys in the lobby and I said uh, I said, wow, what a spread, eh? What a gift package. And they all look at me and said, well, there's nothing in our rooms. And I said, wow, my room's loaded. So anyway, we get up there and they see, and, and we quickly figured out that it was uh, that it was for Scotty. And so I didn't phone right away. We went for dinner. And then a day later, I was waiting to run into him. And some all of a sudden, some of these guys started coming in my room and they were picking off a bottle of wine or picking off a, a beer or whatever. And, I, and I'm going, hey, guys, I got to give this stuff back and it kept disappearing, and so two days later, I walk in the room, and I put some of the stuff into the drawer just so I had some space to put some of my stuff out, and I, I walk in the room, and here's this whole spread again. It was all intended for the owners and the NHL vice presidents and presidents, and uh, I guess Scotty didn't see anything in his room, and he phoned and complained, and so they sent up another order, but they sent it to the wrong room again, so it happened, the, I think it was the following year, the All-Star was in Edmonton, and there was a lovely gift in the room. And before I could call, and I was calling him first thing, the phone rang, and he said, he says, I just saw you check in. Is
0: there anything in your room? And I said, oh, yeah. Well, in addition to being mistaken that way, I also wonder about whether you get misdirected mail or misdirected email for former Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, because there'd be some good gifts there. Oh, yeah. Well, I've, I've seen comments uh on twitter that were
1: directed to him but to me by mistake and i'm going hey i had nothing to do with it <laughs> and whatnot so yeah i've had that one as as well but scotty and i've had a, a lot of laughs over the years about being uh, about the confusion and it's funny because pe- i've had people come up to me and said say how's your dad doing and and i say well my dad passed away a few years ago and they said really when did when did scotty die and i said Scotty's now my dad, and I've I've actually had people argue with
0: me saying he, he's your dad. I know he's your dad. Come on, I know him. And on that note, Scott, apparently he's uh, ninety three. Do you do you still keep in touch with him? I, I've
1: seen him uh, periodically over the last few years. I think he's he was living up in the Halliburton area, and I believe now he's out in BC, and he might be living with the uh, with a daughter out there. So but he had been doing well and was in great spirits the last time I saw him, but God love him. He's a great man, and he was great for the NHL and uh, and uh, bringing along the officials and, uh, and developing that
0: part of the game. Well, great to hear about that Scotty Morrison. This Scott Morrison, we love on this podcast, those that are born and bred in Toronto. Exactly when and where were you born, and please describe your upbringing. Well, I was born
1: in, uh, I guess it would be East general hospital. So, but, uh, at the time, uh, their family is in that sort of East York, Danforth area. Uh, but for me, I basically, my younger years were in Scarborough and, uh, I went to Winston Churchill high school at Scarborough and then, uh, lived, uh, part of that time we lived in, uh, in North York, in the Warden shepherd area. So, um, that was pretty much where I was. And, uh, you know, we're a modest family, but we, uh, you know, I've got two older brothers and, uh, We didn't suffer for anything. Our parents made it happen, and you know they were able to get the hockey equipment and uh, do all the things we we wanted to do as kids. So we were well looked after and a a close family and a loving family, and uh,
0: I would say it was a very good upbringing. There's no question about it. You may or may not be interested or aware of the top five alumni of Winston Churchill Collegiate Institute at Lawrence and Kennedy in Scarborough. Mm -hmm. You ready for this list, Scott? The number 5 top alumnus, Dwayne De Rosario from TFC yeah, and MLS talked to Dwayne about that. number 4, Fred Patterson from the Humble and Fred show and I give a shout out to their producer Toronto Mike. Yeah, no I've been on Fred's show many times uh, when he was
1: on the radio and now with the podcast and uh, one of my best friends growing up Fred was his next-door na- was the next-door neighbor. So. Are you kidding? So I knew him from he was a couple of years older
0: I think but uh, so I knew him Back in the day at school. Number three, New York Rangers and Boston Bruins superstar, Rick Nifty Middleton. Yeah, I knew
1: that. And uh, what a great hockey player, and underestimated hockey player in many ways.
0: The number two is the Bobcat, Bob McCowan, current co-host of A Bobcast with recent Toronto Legends guest, Mr. John Shannon. Yep,
1: yeah, I knew about Bob and I have talked about that too, but uh, our, our years didn't cross over, but uh,
0: knew that he was... Part of the alumni. And the number one alumnus from Winston Churchill Collegiate Institute at Lawrence and Kennedy in Scarborough, Mr. Scott Morrison. So, congratulations. we got another one for you. Uh, Mike Zeisberger. uh uh-huh. With NHL.com. Mike worked with me at The Sun, and uh, he's a grad as well. Oh, shout out to Mike. Scott, the first stage of your career was 22 years at The Toronto Sun from 1979 to 2001. I understand you didn't so much get that first job, but rather you kind of worked your way into it by being kind of eager and taking the initiative.
1: Yeah, I did. I mean, uh, I had for whatever reason newspaper in my blood from a very young age as a kid. Like I couldn't wait to hear the paper drop at the door because that was typically in the way had afternoon paper, as well as morning papers back then. So I just couldn't wait for the paper to arrive. And, uh, so it was in my blood and, uh, I loved writing. And, uh, so as, as years went on, I would played minor hockey in Toronto and the president of the, of the the league at the time was a fellow by the name of John Gardner. And I went to John with a proposal, a buddy and I, of what if we did put together like a monthly newspaper for, uh, for the league and, you know, updates on, you know, profiles and updates and all sorts of things, news and notes. And, uh, and he loved the idea. So that was one way where I really started to get uh, developed clipping file. And uh, I would write letters to the editor of the paper. And if I got it published, uh, then it was another clipping I could put in my portfolio just to show that I could put words together. And uh, and it was always fascinating to see how they would edit it to see if, how close I was to, to being spot on. And uh, so when that developed, what I decided to do was say, I started phoning the papers. I would go to some of these. Uh, big minor hockey tournaments and I would phone the papers and say I'm going to be here Uh, I'm not looking for any money and just looking for a byline but I'll I'll give you a story if you want a story and the papers were much different back then in terms of the the volume and the scope of coverage and they'd say yeah absolutely call it in and uh, and we'll have a look and so uh, that's what I was doing I would go everywhere and just uh, hustle up calling in stories and uh, the son was very good at I did some work with the Globe, and, and we actually had that GTHL newspaper, MTHL at the time, had a weekly spot in the Globe in their Monday section, so I was getting some exposure in there. But the son, after a while, started calling me and say, we've got assignments. Uh, you know, we got a high school tournament over here. we got a minor hockey there. Something here, something there. And uh, are you available? And uh, and that, then they started to become kind of paid gigs. And uh, before long, I was... Uh, you know, it was, they only had paper six days of the week. Then I was working six days of the week, most weeks. It was like a full-time job. And, uh, you know, and they started paying me and then, uh, the word they said to me once I was finished college, that, uh, there would be a job waiting for me. They, they said, get your degree, but also keep working for us. And the school was very Centennial college was very good about that too. They said, the experience you're getting there, we can't match here, but let's find a balance. And, uh, and we did and when i uh, graduated a few months later they were george gross who is the sports editor was good to his word and uh, and i was put on full time while
0: the late great george gross was the founding sun sports editor what was his style and and what did you take away from the way he led that sun sports department
1: well george you know george could be uh, you know back in the time if he didn't like a story you you'd hear about it but he was he was really good at identifying uh, young talent and giving them opportunities i mean i was given an opportunity jim o'leary was a young reporter at the time too dave fuller uh, lance hornby came uh, after me and uh, so he was really good at uh, as i say spawning young talent and then given it the opportunity to uh, develop and, and get good assignments and he wasn't shy about allowing young people to move up the ladder and move up quickly if uh, if he thought they had the the ability. So he was really, really good that way. And, uh, you know, he was a regal guy. He was called the Baron for a reason. You know, he was always dressed immaculately and uh, all of that. But, uh, yeah, he was, I mean, he had a profound influence on my career and and many others. You covered the Maple Leafs during the Harold Ballard era. He did not call you Scott, though. No, he called me Whiskers most days uh, when my beard was a little bit thicker back then. But for whatever reason, he took a shining to me. There was a few of us in the media that he, he really liked. Rick Fraser, who had been at the Sun and moved to the Star. And Rick in, was in many ways a mentor to me in my career and became a very good friend. Uh, Rick was another guy that uh, that Harold liked. And there was many days where I'd be sitting at my desk and you know finishing writing the story from that day's practice or off day story and the phone would ring, and it'd be Harold on the line. He says, Whiskers, I got one for you today. And some days it was news, <clears throat> and some days it was just Harold being Harold, and for lack of a better description, acting goofy and just inventing th- something because he loved the front page, he loved the headlines. And the, the the competition between the papers, the sports sections back then, was so intense, the Globe, the Star, and the Sun, that when you didn't have a story, and the other guy did you heard about it or you better have a big a, bit, a good explanation why you didn't have it uh you know sometimes he couldn't control what when harold who he was going to call on any given day so that one was a little bit of flexibility or wiggle room there but uh yeah he loved to phone up and say i've got this going today i'm not going to hire my i'm going to fire my manager if we lose the, this weekend and all this sort of
0: stuff he was just always stirring the pot i'm toronto born and bred i bleed blue and white i can't even imagine what it would have been like for you to make your job and career going to maple leaf gardens talk a little about what it felt for you to do that well it was pretty amazing my first leaf story i did the
1: sidebar and it was uh december of 79 it was the lanny mcdonald trade i'd been doing some junior stuff and things like that but uh, it just because of the magnitude of the trade, it was all hands on deck. And so I was doing you know, fan reaction, player reaction to, to the deal. So that was my first NHL exposure. And then I think it was later that same season, they started giving me some sidebars on, on the games. And I remember it was the first game, it was a Saturday night, uh, Detroit at Toronto. And, uh, of course, I get to the the rank early. I'm all nervous and excited and and everything else. And uh, so I'm up in the press box and I get everything set up and uh, and whatnot and waiting. And all of a sudden, the game started at 8 o'clock then, I think. And uh, all of a sudden, it's 8. It's 8.05. And Rick Fraser, who was with the Sun back then, was covering the game. And I'm getting really nervous now because he's not in his chair and it's 8.05. The anthem is going on. And Frank Orr, with the star, was another, just a great, great superstar of our industry and a, a wonderful person and a mentor. He turns to me, he says, Ken, don't worry about it. He'll be here by the end of the song. <laughs> and that was Rick's style. He showed up the minute the puck dropped, and I was so relieved at that point. But uh, I still got downstairs. I still got the press pass from that, uh, that first game. Uh, clearly very
0: memorable. Scott, you did a lot of pivots in your career, newspapers to television, to radio. What I want to kind of talk a little about is uh, book writing, being an author. Do you even know how many books you've written? I don't. I think it's
1: close to maybe 15 or 20 uh, in various shapes and forms. Some are, you know, the traditional size. Some are coffee table books. Some are, you know, half pictures, half words. Uh, some are soft covers. Uh but there's, yeah, there's quite a few downstairs. I, I keep saying I got to go down and do a count one of these days, but uh,
0: but uh, several, let's put it that way. Well, this fall, on October 3rd, your newest book will hit the shelves. As noted, currently available for pre-sale, Draft Day, How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind, co-written with ex-NHL general manager and coach Doug McLean. Do you like that description? It's like a money ball for hockey. Yeah, I guess... The, I mean, Moneyball's Moneyball, and that was uh,
1: that was sort of groundbreaking in terms of uh, what Billy Bean and his and his staff came up with in terms of you know the analytics, using the analytics to judge the players and 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 do their drafting and trading and all of that. This examines that premise and how prevalent and important analytics is or isn't to various teams uh, in the National Hockey League when it comes to drafting in particular. But it, what the book does is it really takes people behind the scenes of what goes into uh, to the draft from a team perspective, from the manager to the scouts to preparing the draft list and a, a lot of stories, inside stories that Doug's gathered over the years and others have shared with us about you know things that happened behind the scenes, how teams were built. Some stories that that went into how the how that all came together, success stories, failures, uh, including some of Doug's, and uh, it's just uh, I think it's just uh, there's a there's and we got a great chapter I say humbly on uh, the behind the scenes of the Eric Lindros situation mm. in uh, in the early nineties with uh, he and and uh, the Nordique, and uh, and then ultimately the, the double trade to Philadelphia and the Rangers, and we got. I uh, had a fabulous interview with Pierre Paget, who was the general manager of the Nordique at the time, explaining in in detail how that all unfolded. And that, not to give it away, but uh, I think people will be surprised at uh, just how it, when it came down to the wire of, was there this deal, was there that deal, was there this deal, of just how it unfolded. It's, there was information there. And I covered that back in the day, which spent 10 days in Montreal because of uh, the investigation afterwards to figure out where Eric was going to go uh, but there's stuff that Pierre shared that I'd never heard over the years
0: well we love to go behind the scenes ourselves on this podcast so I'd like to know how this project initially got started and, and what was the timeline from kind of conception to its target publishing date uh, this coming October 3rd
1: it started uh, a few years ago uh, Doug and I you know, I've known Doug since the '80s when he was an assistant coach in the NHL, and then obviously became a head coach and general manager, president, and we worked together for several years at uh, at Sportsnet. And uh, we share one other commonality is that uh, we were both part of the the same purge in 2019 when uh, I said, you know, the two of us, John Shannon, Kiprios, and countless others. We're all part of the purge when our well, in our case contracts were expiring and all the rest of it so so not long after that simon and schuster the publisher and through our agent brian our mutual agent brian wood had talked about getting doug involved in a project and, and they had this idea of this draft day type thought and they went to doug and he was on side and then they came to me if to see if i would work with the uh, doug and in, in helping to write the book and uh since I didn't have anything else on my agenda at the time, we said yes, and uh, so we started it a few years ago, and uh, from my end of it, it got interrupted because I had to jump full time onto the 72 book to get that out for the anniversary, so we kind of paused it and then came back to it, and, uh, and the, the proofs, the final pr- the proofs, just went back in yesterday, and
0: it'll be out, as you say, October 3rd. Fabulous. Well, I'm a big Doug McLean fan. I think he tells it just like it is. That was a, that was a tough, hard-earned win. And again, again, you leave the game saying, wow, how many
1: plays can this Marner kid make?
0: But how do you work with a guy like Doug McLean, who's always apparently in his RV somewhere on the road between Florida and the Maritimes? How do you actually do you get in a room together or on Zoom? Or Well, we did a lot of, uh, you know, just on
1: the phone, but I'd put the phone on speaker and, uh, I'd start asking questions, and he'd start. He'd go on and share his stories, and uh, and then uh, I had the tape recorder going, and then I I would transcribe after. So we'd do a chapter at a at a sitting type of thing, and then I would transcribe and write. So we, yeah we did it. Some days he'd be driving, some days he'd be sitting on his porch in PEI. Some days he'd be at the at the pool in Boca, or <laughs> so uh, here there and everywhere. But um, and Doug actually had started uh, to write. The book before I got involved, and then uh, again they said we we got me for a revo- resource. So uh, I laughed because he was he was doing it on his uh, his iPad or tablet, and I said, "Well, send me the first chapter that you've put together." And he was very concerned to make sure he was getting a lot of words in. And I said, "Well, don't worry about the words; it will worry about the good words, and it's not volume; it's it's quality." And so anyway, he sends me this, uh, the first chapter and for whatever reason, because it was on the tablet and it pops into my computer, I call it up and it was just one 5,000 word paragraph. And I said, oh my God, my head's going to explode here. I said, stop typing. We'll just do, we'll talk from here on in about everything. I said, I can't go through and, and break up all this. So anyway, it was kind of, we laugh about that now, but, uh. He was great to work with. He's got a million stories, a fabulous memory, which is always very helpful when you're the writer. Yeah, and I think I think people will enjoy the the book. It's not Doug's story per se, but there's a lot of Doug's stories in the book, and uh, a lot of background about him and, and and his life at various levels in the in the NHL. How he became a GM, how he became a president and a GM. So I think there's there's a lot of good, as they say, backstories that people. I think we'll enjoy.
0: Should Doug McLean be back in the NHL? Or more importantly, does Doug McLean want to be back in the NHL? Uh, I think he's enjoying life. I think Doug would be a, a good
1: asset to any team would for sure. I mean, he's a smart guy. He still you know, he pays attention to what's going on. He's got experience at all levels. And, but as I say, does he want to be back? I, I haven't really talked to him about it, but I know he's enjoying life. Uh, you talked about it. You know, we, takes the RV up and down from PEI and he's got lots going on in his world, including his pickleball career. But, uh, you know, the one thing about those guys is they're, they're hockey lifers. So they may be happy in their life right now, but if, if the phone were to ring and it was to somebody, I've got an idea for a job here. What do you think they would listen? I mean, they just can't get it out of their blood. It's, it's been their life. And, uh, They can move on, but uh, they can easily be pulled back in.
0: If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 150 additional episodes available anytime. we got Nelson Millman, John Shannon, Jesse Fuchs, Body Breaks' Hal Johnson, and the fastest man on the planet, Donovan Bailey. How they did it, directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Scott, let's talk about your second book on the Epic Canada versus Russia Summit series. It's called "1972: The Series That Changed Hockey Forever."
1: Bernier took a shot. The defenseman fell over. The Afkins and the Burnwaya has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab.
0: for. fell. Here's another shot. Right by the sword! Henderson. Henderson has scored for Canada. They are five words that Canadians of a certain vintage will never forget. With 34 seconds remaining in the historic eighth game of the 1972 Summit Series between superpowers Canada and the Soviet Union, the first time our best professional players faced off against their best so-called amateurs, Paul Henderson scored to put his team ahead for good. It's arguably the greatest I-remember-where-I-was moment in Canadian sports history. This past September 28th was the 50th anniversary of Henderson's goal of the century. Your book covers the legacy of the greatest hockey series ever played, eight games in 26 days that rocked the sport and united Canada. You interviewed most of the Canadian players, Coach Harry Sinden, as well as many of the Russian players and even some of the 3,000 Canadians that made the trip to Russia to support the team. Were you surprised at how much new information you got about an event that took place 50 years prior? To a certain degree. I mean, I did a book
1: leading up to the uh, 20th anniversary. It was called The Days Canada Stood Still and, uh, and interviewed a lot of the players on both sides at that time. But I think what was different coming to the 50 years was just how much their perspective had changed. They were still bitter rivals 20 years after leading up to 20 years after. They didn't like each other and they didn't understand each other. Uh, I don't think they realized just how profound an influence that series had on the game overall, internationally, and on both sides of the pond, the impact it had on both countries. You know, you think about those final games, our, our population at the time was roughly 22, 23 million. And the estimates were that close to 16 million people were watching those games on TV from Moscow you know i remember seeing the pictures of people standing on sidewalks looking through department store windows at the at the TV, at, at the game on the TVs in the window and you know the, the country did come to a stop during those games and the emotional roller coaster of it all but i, I think because of time passing the players had different perspectives and i think they were willing because none of us are getting any younger to share more stories mean mm-hmm. things that they didn't want to talk about back in the day but we're Quite happy to share as time has marched on and, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, not take them to the raves.
0: Uh, one thing I found very interesting was that two huge superstars were missing from the Canadian lineup. There was no Bobby Orr and no Bobby Hull. Why? Well, in the case
1: of Bobby Orr, he had uh, had a great spring. You know, Conn Smythe, Bruins win the cup. But his knee, the famous left knee, was acting up and he had to have a procedure done. And so he hoped that he would be ready for training camp in in early August and wasn't. And then they hoped that he would be ready maybe once the tournament started. He tried it on the ice, but he was nowhere close. But he he stayed with the team. I mean, he was an Eagleson client at the time and Alanda was running the show. But Bobby stayed with the team. And the hope was maybe by the time they got to Moscow, uh, not thinking, not that anybody thought the series was going to be as intense and dramatic as it was, it was going to be this, you know, all star show uh, going across the, our country and then across the pond, uh, that maybe he could be ready to go then, but um, it didn't allow. In the case of uh, Bobby Hall, and this that was very contentious and controversial, the WHA had come on the scene in 1972, and, uh, you know, Bobby ended up signing. Uh, the big contract, the monster contract at the time with the Winnipeg Jets, first time you'd ever heard a million dollars attached to a, a hockey player, even though it wasn't all in one year. But that was a, a huge signing for this upstart league. And a lot of the NHL owners were not on side with this uh, Canada Russia series, their Soviet series, because they're saying, What's, you know, the American teams, what's in it for us? Are, you know, giving up our players, risking injury, et cetera, et cetera, missing training camp. And uh, so one of the concessions ultimately became that they wouldn't allow players who were not signed or signed with the WHA to participate. It would be NHL only. And so, you know, Phil Esposito was quite candid at the book at the time. He said, well, then call us Team NHL. Don't call us Team Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it became Team Canada very quickly after what happened in the first game. So there was a big campaign of uh, people across the country, they got the prime minister involved, and uh, the whole with Russia was the campaign. There was buttons that were produced, billboards in, in the major cities across the country. But ultimately, it uh, was not allowed to play, and it was Jerry Cheever, J.C. Tremblay, Bobby, and a couple others who were on the radar for, for the Canadian team on the original roster they announced were were not allowed to participate.
0: Well, it'll always be a great one of those great barroom debates. What if Bobby Orr or Bobby Hall had been there? Yeah. One of the most curious stories about the whole Summit series for me, Scott, is the status of the puck that Paul Henderson scored the goal of the century with. It had absolutely no markings, so couldn't be distinguished from other pucks. They actually kept playing with that puck after Henderson scored. They finished the game with it. And then Canadian player, the late Pat Stapleton, could be seen on film snagging it when the game ended. Apparently, Pat was a real character. Scott, what were some of the theories as to where that puck ended up? And what is your best guess as to where that puck ended up? I think Pat had it.
1: Again, I don't know, because there were no markings on the puck, as you mentioned, who knows where that actual puck is. He, he picked it up. There's no question. Did he keep it for eternity, knowing that how special it would be, what a keepsake it would be? He claims, and I talked to him at various times over the years, he said that, he said that, uh, you know, he, he put it in his in his wife's brassiere to carry it home and get it through security at the airport and get it on the plane. And then over the years, and he was a character and he loved to have fun with it, as he always claimed he'd have a puck in his pocket. Here's the puck. I've got it. Uh, I think he did. I really do. And uh, people that are close to Pat, who I've talked to, they they believe that he had that puck at home somewhere. Uh, One thing I will say about Pat Stapleton, he was a terrific hockey player, but he was absolutely fabulous to that 72 group. And that big reason why they stayed together as a group and and an association alumni group and have helped out with the charitable works and others is because he was the glue that kept that team together after the series when it came to keeping the memory alive
0: and doing great things for hockey and for, for communities. And for anyone anyone out there who says, well, who cares? It's just a puck. Uh, What happened with Paul Henderson's jersey?
1: Well, that one went for, I forget what the amount was, but it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. It it was north of a million, apparently. North of a million. I couldn't remember the number, but yeah. I mean, and I'd heard various different numbers at times, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if you're into that spending money for memorabilia, that is uh, as big a piece that you could ever find in Canadian sports history is that Henderson. Probably the stick and the and the sweater that he wore and you know to score that goal. It doesn't get any bigger than that, that's for sure. And there's a funny story in the book that um, the late John Ferguson, who was quite a character too, and uh, and Serge Savard, uh, they got a stick signed by uh, by the whole team, and Fergie carried this thing back with him on the plane. One let it out of his sight when they landed in Montreal. Once everything was done. Dear Trudeau, the Prime Minister, was there, and Savard grabs the stick. He's walking down the line shaking hands. far, Savard grabs the stick from Ferguson and said, Mr. Prime Minister, look at the gift that John's got for you. <laughs> so John was like, oh, my God, what do I do here? And he was crushed when it was afterwards. And he said, well, what do I do? And I said, anyway, the word leaked to the media that uh, of the story, and the next day the, Trudeau returned the stick to, to John.
0: On that note, what was the role of Prime Minister Trudeau? This, of course, being current Prime Minister Justin's father Pierre in putting together the summit series. Yeah, Justin
1: was born just several months prior to the series, and uh, Harry Sinden and Eagleson and went to Ottawa during training camp and delivered a mini Team Canada jersey for for young Justin. So, but uh, Pierre was involved. There was that you know the Soviets were pushing on one side, Canada was pushing on the other wanting to get professionals to be able to play internationally because we were getting beaten up with our amateurs. They competed hard, but, you know, the Soviets were by and large professionals at the time, just called amateurs. So there's all sorts of these workings going on to try and make that happen. You know, the country was uh, in, a, in a rough spot in the early 70s. Uh, you know, we had to divide between the East and West. Uh, Quebec, was a there was a divide there too. Uh, the FLQ crisis had happened and Trudeau was very much of the mind he said that we needed something to make this country feel good about itself again and he liked the idea of having our professionals play in a in a series like that so you know can, hockey being what it is in this country that it could be something that would unite the country in a much different way it was imagined in a much different way Uh, but it could unite the country, be a distraction, and and make us feel good about ourselves again on an international stage. And it did all that, but as I say, in a
0: much different way than anybody could have or very few would have predicted. I was kind of amazed to learn that about 3,000 Canadians made their way over the Soviet Union to support Team Canada in person for the four games in Moscow. The USSR was certainly not a tourist destination at the time, and one of those attending supportive fans was none other than Maple Leafs owner Harold Ballard.
1: Yeah, well, Harold was part of the uh, with Eagles, and they had bought the TV rights to the series, so or were involved with the TV Bobby Orr's Corporation. So, so he had an attachment to it, and as much as his disdain for the Soviets, in, in years later, he liked that series very much because it was put money in his pocket. So Harold and his and his son Bill were part of the the contingent of 3,000 that went to to Moscow. And, you know, those people, they bought, to their credit, the vast majority bought their packages, the travel packages, before the series started, thinking that uh, it would be, uh, you know, just a little pleasure journey over there, see a part of the world that nobody would travel to, or very few traveled to back in those days, especially. And then they really lucked out because the series unfolded. And I'm sure and many were very reluctant to bother going over for game five onward after what had happened in Canada, but uh, they fell
0: into the greatest series ever. Yeah, they certainly did. Let's talk about Alan Eagleson. Now 90, most people probably thought he had passed away as I I literally hadn't seen anything in public about him, although he was featured in the recent Harold Ballard documentary. Said Alan Eagleson, if it wasn't for me, there wouldn't have been a Canada-Russia series. True? False or somewhere in between?
1: Somewhere in between. I mean, he had a huge influence in pulling that whole thing together. There's no question. I mean, we tell the story in the book, uh, you know, him and Bobby Orr and, and the late Carl Brewer were in his backyard when the World 66 World Cup was on and said, why don't we have something like this for hockey? Or it was a later World Club. Why don't we have something like this for hockey? And, and so he had been thinking about you know, trying to expand the horizons. But, you know, Hockey Canada at the time, as I say, the government, the Soviets, all of them coming from different angles, all of a sudden all got pulled together. And, and that was a huge part of it. There's no question about it. Uh, if he wasn't there, would it not have happened? I'm not sure. But, uh, but it did
0: happen in, in large part because of his efforts, for sure. What is his status or role today? He seems to be persona non grata. Is he a hockey pariah?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people uh, obviously have not forgiven him for what had happened with the Players Association and the monies and everything that he was obviously charged with and served some time for. You know, talking to the players, some are still very bitter and upset about what had happened, but this was all post-72, of course. Some have forgiven and say, you know, I look at sort of two lenses. What he did later was wrong. What he did in 72 he made that team happen and you know he was the driving force to, behind the scenes to keep that team together through the rough periods of uh, the games in Canada and then they said we couldn't have survived in uh, quite the way we did in Moscow off the ice especially without without Allen being there because of and of the personality that he had that he was you know in your face and wouldn't take any guff and all the shena- shenanigans that were were going on behind the scenes with the soviets over officials and you know just crazy things happening at the hotel and food disappearing and everything else that al was the guy who could get in their face and we saw what happened in, in game 8 when he went challenging after the the goal light didn't go on in the corn, corn YA goal and gets you know roughed up by the army and the, all the rest of it there's not too many other organizers would have been in the soviets grill at the time the way al would do it
0: Let's switch over to your memoir that was written with Rick Vive, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life from 2021. Rick is of course a past guest of this podcast so is of particular interest to our listeners. He sets the record straight as he tells his story of turmoil in Toronto's Harold Ballard years and beyond. I don't think he gave a shit about the team. I, I honestly don't. I think
1: all he cared about was having people in the seats and making money. And I don't think he cared if we won a Stanley Cup or not i I honestly don't
0: named the captain is just twenty two years of age. He writes it in hindsight he was too young and Ballard put too much pressure on a player still growing as a person. Scott, your thoughts yeah i mean twenty two it's uh, is very young to be a captain
1: and to be a captain in a market like Toronto at that age, even more pressure and then with teams that were struggling and had an unpredictable owner like Harold, who wasn't afraid and, as we talked about earlier, craved headlines and would come out in public and say, my captain sucks, he's no good, things like that. Yeah, there was, there was a lot on his plate. And just being a young guy like 22 and you're living in a big city and making big dollars by the standards of the day, yeah, that was a, a very difficult situation to be in. One thing I just want to quickly mention Andrew, just as as rough as it was and probably off the ice at times for Rick and the pressures and the emotions of being captain, he still was a great player. and you know first to 50 goals, the team record that stood up until last year of 54 doing it 50 goals three three years in a row, which still hasn't been done by a leaf. Uh, as I say, the first leaf to 50. He, he had a fabulous career, and I really think, and not just because I did the book, but because of having covered him in those years, uh, I think Rick's legacy is underestimated in Maple Leaf history uh, or underappreciated in Maple Leaf history because uh, because those years were so, there's so much turmoil, and I think Leaf fans just want to forget about them, and they forget that there was some really, really good talent on those teams, a lot of good players. They just didn't have the structure above to make it successful, but uh, it was, wasn't was because they had bad
0: players entirely on the team. You got me kind of riled up, uh, and I'm on the same page as you. In the storied history of the Toronto Maple Leafs, no player scored 50 goals in a season until Rick Vive did it in 1981-1982. He then did it three years in a row. He ranks fifth in goals, tenth in points all time for the Maple Leafs, despite playing just eight seasons in the blue and white. The franchise retired the numbers worn by 16 players back in 2016, but number 22 wasn't among them. Why isn't Rick Vives number 22 hanging from the rafters of Scotiabank Arena and his name as revered in Leafs lore as more recent stars Doug Gilmore, Matt Sandine, Wendell Clark?
1: I think what I talked about earlier, Andrew, is that because there was so those teams where there is so much turmoil, you know, the Ballard years are not fondly remembered. I guess the, the easiest way to say it is that all the guys you mentioned, you know, from Wendell to Dougie to to Mats, those teams had success to some degree. Didn't win the cup, didn't win the big prize. Obviously, every Leaf fan knows that. But those teams, you know, the the, the Gilmore Clark years, they went to the final four the two years in '93 and '94. You know, Mats had teams that went to the final four, so that that success didn't follow. They had a couple of years in Ricky's day where they, they won some series. But they were getting the playoffs with 54-point teams and in the, the old Chuck Norris division. Yeah. So I just I think just because there wasn't a lot of success as a team uh, and because of, uh, as I say, everything else surrounding the team, that's kind of a chapter a lot of people want to forget. But I think it's unfair to a lot of the players on those teams, as I mentioned. And Wendell was on those teams too. Boris Solomon, God rest his soul, he was there. And I think uh, what Rick did, was able to accomplish under those circumstances, makes the feat even greater. And I think he deserves to be have his number up in, those, up in the, the rafters.
0: Couldn't have said it better. Toronto Maple Leafs, put number 22 up in the rafters. Rick five deserves it. Rick did not have a pleasant experience in his one season as head coach of the Mississauga Ice Dogs of the Ontario Hockey League. Most of the trouble coming from his dealings with team owner Don Cherry, Don does not come off looking great. What was the feedback to the book, if any, from the Don Cherry Camp? Um, the feedback, I didn't
1: hear from from uh, Don, but uh, a lot of people said that, uh, you know, what Rick had said about the, the situation there, how Don had treated him and, uh, and whatnot, was, uh, was very accurate. And it was a really uh, awkward,
0: awkward season. Scott, shout out to radio radio broadcasting legend Nelson Millman, who serves as the vice chair to your role as committee chair for the annual Con Smythe Sports Celebrity Dinner and Auction. Are you already at work on next year's dinner?
1: Well, we're, we're in a bit of a pause right now, but we have had one meeting to sort of throw some ideas out about uh, potential head table guests and honorees. But we'll be back in earnest in a month or so getting going full throttle but uh yeah nelson uh, well he's been a friend for many many years and uh he wanted to retire from the committee but i don't let him retire <laughs> you have to get on the phone occasionally so we keep him around for laughs and his experience is invaluable for for everything we do so uh yeah the, the cons has been a. I started in the early 90s and have been chair for i think since 95 of the dinner committee and uh uh it's just such a wonderful cause um, you know it's uh, you see you meet these these children and the challenges that they have in their lives and uh, I have a smile on their face all the time and you think about why my worst day isn't that bad when it's uh, when you see what they go through every year so to to be able to raise the money to uh, get the equipment that they need to have a, a as as good a day-to-day life as they possibly can and to be able to send them to the camp which is one of the biggest thrills of of their summer is to to go away to camp, uh, be able to be a part of that is, is it's humbling and uh, uh, but very
0: rewarding. That's great, Scott. You worked with Maple's former assistant general manager Bill Waters. Was that on radio for uh, AM six forty? Yeah, I was.
1: I uh, did uh, regular appearances. That was after I left Sportsnet in two thousand and six. I left Sportsnet and I went to Hockey Night CBC. And so Bill was doing this, I guess he had leaf lunch at the time, and then he moved to the afternoon show. And uh, uh, so I did regular appearances with Bill. And, you know, I'd known him for years, his his son Brad. My dad coached Brad in minor hockey and Don Mills Flyers when Brad was like eight, nine years old. So that's when I first met Bill. And then I knew him, uh, obviously, from a professional standpoint very well when he was uh, one of the top player agents in, in the business. And then obviously he moved to the media side and was doing color on the leaf games. And so we traveled a lot and, uh, we still talk. I talked to him once or twice a week. He would still stay in touch. So he's a,
0: he's a character. That's for sure. That had a great, great sure. hockey mind. And to close off any fond memories of your work for chill magazine, the official magazine of the beer store.
1: Oh boy. Scotty Stevenson was the publisher. I think was, uh, uh, yeah, he came to me and uh, he had some fun writing stories and lots of cool beer store swag that's probably still downstairs somewhere or outside in the in the tiki bar. But uh, yeah, that was a that was a cool magazine. It was kind of ahead of its time in terms of getting away from the traditional format and doing the shorter shorter hits and anecdotal things and uh, and whatnot and, and lots of pictures. So yeah, it, that was fun. Yeah. You always got lots in the hopper. What is coming
0: next for Scott Morrison?
1: Well, we've got the Doug McLean book uh, coming out October 3rd, draft day. I'm glad that that's uh, sort of at the finish line from the publishing standpoint. And then uh, I'll be knee deep in a week or so with uh, a project that'll come out the following uh, October with Penguin Random House, and that's uh, Mike Keenum, his story. And, uh, yeah, Mike and I have known Mike since, uh, well, one of my first stories in, uh, 1979 comes back to December of 79 again was, uh, uh, back in the day, it was the, they would send club teams to the world junior team, uh, tournament and Mike was coaching Peterborough. So they had a press conference at the hot stove lounge at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, just before the Pete's were departing. Uh, I forget where they, where the tournament was that year, but somewhere overseas and, uh, so that's, I got to know Mike then, and then uh, we just uh, always seemed to hit it off over the years. And at his various stops, I covered him in Philly when, you know, when he had a success there with the Flyers, and when he first got to the NHL, and then moved along the way, and always stayed in touch. And uh, we stayed in touch to this day. And so it, uh, we're going to get this project done. So it's uh, it's going to be a, a a great read because he's going to tell all good and bad and admit. He made mistakes, but also did things well. And uh, you think about the number of teams he coached. He won a Stanley Cup, Canada Cups, uh, a Gagarin Cup in Russia. He got to Memorial Cup Final. He won a university championship. He won an American League championship. And then you think of the the players that he's coached over those years, just some of the greatest names in the game from Gretzky to Messier to keep going. I mean, it's just uh, fabulous. And Brett Hall, we've got all these... Brett's telling stories about Mike and Mike's telling them they've actually come together. They, they, they patched up and admitted wow. that, people, admitted that they were both goofy at the time and so <laughs> tried to torment each other. But, uh, so anyway, that'll be a, a I think of an interesting
0: book. I like the sounds of that Brett Hall and Mike Keenan coming together. That's great. Scott, where can we best follow you and where can people go when they want to know about all, oh, your huge catalog of books that you've written?
1: Uh, whew, that's a good question. I don't have a website. <laughs> I'm lucky that I'm connected with you today. That's how tech savvy I am. Uh, but I, I am on Twitter and I do promote my projects. I don't uh, weigh in as much as I used to on what's going on in the hockey world, but uh, I do promote when there's a book coming or, or an event coming and
0: that sort of thing. So that's probably, Twitterverse is probably the best. Excellent. Well, it was great catching up with you today, hearing all your great stories. And again, everyone out there, Draft Day, How Hockey Teams Pick Winners or Get Left Behind, available for pre-order now, being published October 3rd. And we look forward to your next project, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Andrew. My pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Scott Morrison, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.